Okay, so Isaiah 44 and 45. Um, I don't know if y'all have ever seen the show, but I'm really obsessed with Shark Tank. It's like my one show that I watch without my husband, so like I watch it when I fold laundry and stuff, because anyway, everything else he like gets mad if I watch without him, you know? Um, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, yeah. Okay, so if you're not familiar, it's a show where all these entrepreneurs come in and they pitch their ideas for these, they call them five titans of industry, in the hopes of getting an investment and a business partner in exchange for some equity in their business. Um, so one question that's repeatedly asked in the tank is, particularly for businesses featuring like a product is do you have a patent right um and it's amazing when to see how these entrepreneurs faces will light up and they'll say yes and they hold their certificate i have one or two or i've even seen this guy have 12 patents um patents um giving them the ownership rights to the functionality and utility of the product um, so a patent shows that the government has said this person is the owner and creator of this product um, and that they have the right to do with it what they want um, without fear of like too much competition or someone stealing it, right? They were the first to put things together in this way um, and they get to do with it what they please. Um, so patents are a good thing in the tank because they show that the idea is secure, um, worth investing in without too much risk of competition. Um, However, from the investor standpoint, the patent can prove to be challenging because the owner has the rights to decide what to do with the product. This means that sometimes deals will fall through in the tank um, because the investor maybe disagrees with the entrepreneur's vision for their product. For example, Mr. Wonderful, aka Kevin O'Leary, is known for his money-making licensing deals where he licensed a product a patented idea to a bigger company and lets them deal with the manufacturing and everything. But often this isn't what the entrepreneur wants because they want to create their own business. They don't want someone else to be making their product. And so the deal will fall through. Um, and sometimes these patent owners come in with business plans and goals in mind and they know where they want to take this product to see it flourish and to help people, to make them a lot of money, to be successful. And here too we'll see a problem in the tank because sometimes the sharks like Mark Cuban disagree with the plan for the product. They see a different application or only want to direct-to-consumer sales online instead of having to deal with retail space and stores. And deals will fall through here, too, or sharks won't invest because ultimately the patent owner gets to decide what happens with their product and how it's manufactured, marketed, sold, or used. So Isaiah, in our passage today, shows us again and again that it's on this very same premise that God has every right to do whatever he pleases in this world because he created it. He can use who he wants, how he wants. He is in control of the whole world and everything in it because he created it. And he wants to see the world flourish because he created it and everyone and everything in it. He owns a patent on you and on me and on everyone else. And it's on this basis that he appeals to us today and to the Israelites through his prophet Isaiah to trust him. That's going to be the thrust if you see your very rigorous outline in front of you. <laughs> Trust him, um, and not just to trust him blindly, but to trust him because he has made you, and he knows you better than anyone else, and he wants you to be blessed. To trust that he will do what he says he will do, because in the past he has done what he said he will do, has done. In this case, he will redeem Israel. He will bring them out of exile, and he will bring them back into their land. They will have riches and be forgiven of their sins and transgression. Ultimately, every knee will bow and every tongue will declare allegiance to Yahweh. 
God appeals to his people through his prophet to trust him to deliver them from their bodily captivity to the Babylonians and their spiritual captivity to their own sin because he made them and he loves them and he wants to bless them. So the main point of our text today is this. Do not fear, people of God. Instead, trust the Lord and the Lord alone with your salvation and with the redemption of the world because he is God, your maker. Okay. So the first point, trust me, because I made you and I plan to bless you. God appeals, again, not me, I'm I'm talking as God here, right? Don't trust me. (laughs) God appeals to his people through Isaiah in these two chapters as their maker. That's where we start. Immediately in 44, 1 and 2, he says, "Thus Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. After the way chapter 43 ends with this delivering Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling, he reminds them that in case they are tempted to think that this is the end of the story, that their sin was enough for the Lord to forget them, God can't forget them, just like a mother can't forget her child. He has a particular interest in his people because he made them. And so he reminds them, I know you and I made you. I chose you. You are mine. And then he quickly moves to the big picture for God's final blessing to his people. As Isaiah proclaims to Israel, Fear not, for I will pour water on the thirsty lands and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offering and blessing on your descendants. This stands again in direct contrast with the end of chapter 43 in the destruction written there. Where it was, where it was promised drought, now God promises water to quench thirst and the spirit to enable them to do what they've been unable to do until now. This picture is one of blessing. And it's so beautiful. His descendants will sprout up like blades of grass, and he will pick them, right? And each one of them calling, I am the Lord's. They will be glad to be the Lord's, finally, instead of trying to manipulate him like we've seen with syncretism and mixing all their religions and offering these sacrifices. They're finally just going to be glad to be his. Isaiah is reminding them that God made them, and he plans to bless them despite their sin. So they must not fear, and they must trust him. Okay, now point two. In addition to appealing to them as their personal and intimate maker who plans to bless them, he also appeals to them, as he's done in the past chapters, as the only God of the universe. He's the sovereign ruler of all the earth. Trust me, he says, because besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Who can declare what is to come or what happens besides me? Trust me. I know what I'm talking about. I am in control. Yahweh is unique. He makes... Again, similar, he's been making this argument, right, over the past few chapters. He's the only God who can predict the future, the only God who can explain the past. And again, he appeals to them, fear not, because I am the God who keeps my promises. Okay, now he turns from explaining why we should trust God to showing how we might be tempted to trust other things. And we're going to turn to idolatry. He shows how futile and short-sighted it is to trust in anything but the Lord, the maker and creator of all things. This passage can appear random. Here Isaiah goes ranting about idols again, like he seems to keep doing this, right? Like he can't get away from this, this idea. But I think, I think this placement of the segment in our text is important because while commanding his people not to fear and to trust the Lord, his attention turns towards idols because he knows human hearts and how prone we are to trust and worship anything and everything but the Lord. He is showing that when fear builds up in our heart, we don't turn to the Lord. We will turn, and we don't turn to the Lord, we will turn to something, right? We are not neutral people. We are worshipers, and we are always seeking for something to worship. So when our worship isn't correctly directed to the Lord, the creator of the universe, we direct our worship toward created things. 
Isaiah shows us exactly why this is so dangerous. Because we are what we love and what we trust and what we worship. So when we love and cherish and trust finite created things that are profitable to nothing, we become nothing. He says, all who fashion idols are nothing. We see here Isaiah referring to this man, the ironsmith, right? He falls down before an idol and he's worshiping it. I think the most revealing line he uses here to describe his idolatry is that he prays to it and asks it to deliver him. So there's an easy definition that we can use for the next little bit for idolatry. An idol is anything we look to to deliver us from our challenges, pains, and trials. As Christians, we are called to worship, hope in, and trust God alone for deliverance from sin and pain and suffering. And if we are being honest, we don't do this well. I know I don't do this well. I certainly confess that the Lord is my only hope. And I believe it sometimes. I really do, sometimes. But if I'm being honest, I frequently find myself leaning on little backup plans, too. You know, to deliver me from my insufficiencies or my sin or my pain. These things I look to to justify myself, they're my idols. Even though it doesn't always look as obvious as lying down prostrate and singing songs to these idols. Although, for being honest, we do that too. And we're going to talk about that more in a minute. And I don't ever pray out loud to an idol to deliver me. But functionally, I live my life as if they can. So some examples of idols that I place my hope in um, are my children, my husband, my morality, uh, my money, political systems, my education, And if I'm being really honest with y'all, my ability to get up here and do this very thing that a lot of people are terrified to do. Um, these, These are things I trust in when I don't trust the Lord enough, right? These are things I run over in my head when I'm feeling down or my self-esteem is low. Well, at least I'm a good mom, or at least I'm a decent wife, uh, or, you know, I'm a good person who would never do insert the bad behavior of the moment that I'm trying to make myself feel better with. Um, Or things that make me feel better than other people, you know? Like, well, at least we're more successful than they are, or we're more financially secure than they are, or smarter than they are. And then there are the things that I look to, and I think, yes, like that will just make this better, right? Um, More money, a different person in office, um, a particular legislation to pass, or a law to be overturned. I think, okay, it's important to add here, idol, like these things are blessings, right? Like all of creation is a blessing and bestowed to mankind and intended for their good. But we twist creation and use it in ways that it was never intended to. It's not like these things are evil in and of themselves. Just want to caveat that, right? But these things are idols when I twist them, when we twist them like this. We worship them, right? I worship them every single day. And the majority of my idol worship is driven from fear. Fear and doubt that the Lord really is in control and really has chosen me and really is enough to cover all of my sin and all of my insufficiencies and evil. The language here in verses 12 through 20 of 44 is is scary, like when you read it. (laughs) Um, And yet it's so real to our everyday lives. Like it's so easy to sit back and read how ridiculous this man looks, working diligently to carve out a god from something he is also using to keep himself warm and heat up his food. He's worshiping something he can also use and control and manipulate to provide his basic needs. It looks absurd when you think about it. But if we're honest, we all do this, right? Like we look to money for our security and identity one second, and then the next we go buy a gallon of milk with it. 
Um, we look to man-made systems like politics, like political systems, right, a democracy, whatever, for deliverance and protection from the scary things in this world. Like one minute we're using God's creation to flourish and to, you know, like help society be great, and then the next we're just worshiping it, much like the ironsmith. Sometimes our worship looks like hope or trust, and sometimes it looks like anxiety when something is threatened or taken away. But sometimes it just looks like outright worship, like the same thing we do on Sunday morning. We pledge allegiance to idols, we sing songs, we live out rituals, we chant chants, we give hand signs and memorize cheers, especially in Texas, <laughs> right? We look to these things for our identity, our alma mater when it comes to the big game, our political party when it comes time for the big election, our nationality when it comes time to think about our global world or participate in the Olympics, like the ones that are going to start this week. Uh, sometimes when we aren't careful, we even place these things above our identity in Christ, Idols affect our relationship with the Lord. That much is obvious, right? Our misplaced worship causes us to trust less in the Lord and more in the gifts of the creation he has given us. But it also harms our relationships with each other. For example, when I elevate my identity as an SMU Mustang or an American or an educated upper-middle-class white female or a Republican or a Democrat or a Calvinist or a mother or a wife, Above simply being a child of God, it causes me to first identify with people based on other things and not on our sisterhood in Christ. When we pay, place our identity primarily in these idols, we will, not, we will naturally put others' identities in those same categories too, right? Um, it can cause us to devalue the lives of the very ones we are united to in Christ. I know this is true for me. It can make me condescend or exclude or discriminate or outright dismiss people because my loves are disordered, because I'm seeing the world wrongly and placing value in all of the wrong things. Isaiah ends this section with a very sobering word about idolaters like myself. He says, They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes, so they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. He feeds on ashes, a deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Idols delude our hearts. And they lead us astray. They capitalize on fear, and they ultimately make our fears grow bigger instead of helping subside them. Because creation was never intended to save creation. We need our creator for that. But luckily, this is not where Isaiah ends. His sobering word on idolatry is meant to do just that. To sober us up. To help us admit our sin and our delusion so that we can see our need for a savior. And then he proclaims in verse 21, Remember these things, my people. I formed you. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud, your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Yes, we are idol worshipers, but we are God's idol worshipers. No, we cannot deliver ourselves, but God can deliver us, and he will. He, we can't earn our way back to his favor, but he will blot out our transgressions. Okay, so God is, think, is speaking through Isaiah to the people about their Babylonian captivity, right? Which hasn't even taken place yet. Like, he's just talking all about the future. It's just so crazy. So after their land is overtaken and their cities are destroyed, he tells them that he will redeem them. Not just spiritually, no. He will actually physically restore them to their land that now stands desolate and demolished. We see in verse 26, the Lord says of Jerusalem, She will be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. He plans to bring his people back out of captivity and return them to their land 
from exile and restore their cities and even their temple. But how will the Lord do this? This is where the story gets really interesting. So far, it's just been the same pattern, right? This is, this is the God who, like, we can go back to the Exodus. Like, God saves his people. He brings them out of captivity. He gives them a land, right? It just sounds pretty familiar. It's, it's kind of cool. God does the same things. However, unlike the Exodus, this time is going to be different. Because instead of raising up a leader from his own people, like he did with Moses, Isaiah foretells that God will use a king by the name of Cyrus to deliver his people. Cyrus, king over Babylon, he says, is my shepherd and will fulfill all of my purposes, building up Jerusalem and laying the foundation of the temple. That's right, a pagan king. Isaiah is saying here that God is going to use a pagan king to free his people from exile and captivity and restore them to their rightful land. And not through conversion. No, this king will not know or worship God. That much is made clear in verses 4 and 5. He says, I name you, though you do not know me. Right? I equip you, though you do not know me. But still, nonetheless, he says he's going to use Cyrus in verse 13 to build my city, to set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. He is going to use Cyrus to rebuild his city, to set his people free, even though Cyrus will never know him or worship him for the God he truly is. And in verse 4, Isaiah tells us that God is telling his people now. He is predicting the future, right? And this crazy plot twist involving a pagan king redeeming his people and naming him by name nearly 250 years before this man will even exist or this will take place so that his people will know when it's happening that it's God who's in control of everything, even pagan kings named Cyrus. Okay, this is a side note, but it's pretty cool when I was studying that, um, so there's this guy, Josephus, sorry, Josephus, he's a Jew, he writes during the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and he records that King Cyrus, like, read this about himself, and it, like, drove him to want to do it even more. I don't know, it's just pretty, it's just kind of cool. Like, this really was written down, and this guy really did exist, and he really read it. Anyway, it's, it's cool. Like, imagine reading something someone wrote about Christina Maxwell 250 years ago. That's so weird, right? Okay. <laughs> anyway, okay, so, but why? Why would God do this? Why would God use this pagan king to deliver his people? Honestly, we don't know, and he doesn't tell us. But what is interesting is what comes next. So right in the middle of Isaiah predicting the future and sharing God's redemptive plan comes this little refrain in verses 9 and 10. It says, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? God anticipates our response. He knows his people well, and he knows they are not going to like this method. Did y'all catch in verse 1 where he calls Cyrus his anointed? I mean, this is seriously blasphemous to the Jews, right? Like, that's the term he describes King David with, and he's saying this about this pagan king. This would have angered and confused them so much. You mean you're going to use this pagan king who enslaved us and kept us here to be the one to bring us back to our land? Yeah, that sounds like a really good way to convince everyone that the God of Israel is the true God of the universe, right? But he challenges them. Who are you to question me and my methods? That's like clay questioning a potter. And this is where I want to camp for one more minute before we wrap up. Because I think if we're willing, we might identify with the Jews here. So this idea of questioning God and his methods isn't unique to Isaiah. Um, it happens all throughout scripture. I'm first reminded of Moses, right? God calls him to go back into Egypt, and he's like, me? I'm like really bad at speaking or poor of tongue or however he phrases it, right? Like, me? I can't be the one to do that. 
or when we get to the New Testament and Andrew calls Philip um, to come meet Jesus and follow him, right? And he's like, Nazareth? You're telling me that the Christ came from Nazareth? But what good can come out of Nazareth, right? Um, or when basically every single religious leader of, G- of Jesus' day um, failed to worship him and then even had him killed because they couldn't possibly believe that this could have been what God meant when he promised to send the Christ. Or how about when Peter was named the rock, the foundation of the church? Peter, the guy who denied Christ three times, like that weak guy, God suddenly says, like, this is the rock of my church. Or even worse, Paul. Can you, can you imagine being an apostle, right? The doubt that was happening among them. Like, God, what are you doing? You want us to let this man, a terrorist, right? Like a murderer of your people, plant churches and write half of the New Testament. That sounds really stupid. But the Bible is filled with scenes, just like this one here in Isaiah. And if we're being honest, I think our lives are too. I know that's my tendency, is to question God in his mysterious ways. I find myself questioning God's methods for my salvation, um, his redemption of the world, for my sanctification, for the mortification of my sin. Can any of y'all relate? Um, I find myself being, being pretty arrogant with God. Like, I really find myself thinking, I know better than the God of the universe about this stuff. I'm like Mark Cuban on Shark Tank, questioning the entrepreneur's business plan. Except, unlike Mark Cuban, who is very rich and an expert at business, I am a sinner who knows nothing about the kingdom of God. Okay, like, have y'all ever read the Sermon on the Mount? Like, really read it, right? Like, just take it all in, and you think to yourself, like, really? This is how we're called to live? Turning the other cheek and giving away our money and loving our enemies? Like, it just doesn't sound smart, you know? I think we question God and his methods. I'm being serious. Like the Israelites are here with Cyrus because of fear. The same emotion that leads us to idolatry leads us to question God. And I think the two are mixed up together. So often when I'm questioning God and why he is doing something or ask why he asked me to do something in a particular way, it has to do with an idol I've made. So turning the other cheek threatens my idol of security in a physical sense and my idol of self-preservation in a social sense. Following Matthew 18's prescription to go to my brother or sister when I have a problem with them really threatens my people-pleasing idol. Um, I think I fear confessing sin or being honest about wrongdoing because of fear of abandonment or letting people down. I think I could go on, but you get the picture. Questioning or doubting how God works in the world causes me to think that other people can never be a part of the church because they are different than me. That God could never be using them for his purposes. It makes me blind to injustice at the hands of people who look like me and ignorant to the causes of different expressions of Christianity. And it makes me arrogant to think I have nothing to learn from other Christian traditions. Putting God in a box makes me think that Christians can only go about civic engagement in a particular way. Idolatry blinds us, like Isaiah says, and it leads us to doubt that God is at work in the world in a variety of ways through a variety of people. In his commentary on Isaiah, John Oswalt suggests that it is precisely those who are most faithful to Jesus who are at the greatest danger of putting God in this box and thus limiting what he can do in and through them. He suggests that the most faithful, like maybe those who weekly attend a very rigorous Bible study on Isaiah, are often the ones that need to be shaken out of their dangerous confidence that they know the Almighty Creator so well that they can tell him what he's going to do next. The question for us here can be summarized as this. 
do we believe that God is going to use people and things that we love or people and things that he loves to accomplish redemption? Have we limited God there to say he will only use means that I've appointed to accomplish work in my life or his work in the world? But again, this isn't the final word for idol worshipers or for those who question the Lord's methods. Thank God. Through the rest of chapter 45, Isaiah continues to foretell to Israel how God plans to redeem his people. All of the wealth of his pagan enemies, including Egypt and Cush, will be theirs once Cyrus leads them back. And all of the pagan nations surrounding them will come in chains and bow down to them and will recognize that their God must be the true God. Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. And again, he appeals to his authority as creator in verse 18. He can be trusted because he created them and will do what it takes to save them, including raising up a pagan king. He proclaims in verse 22, Because of this, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And he paints a beautiful picture of redemption, when to him every knee shall bow and every tongue swear allegiance. And in the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and shall glory. Our passage ends today with the Lord proclaiming that he has the right to do what he wants, how he wants, as the creator of the universe. And he graciously proclaims that his plan is to save his people, to redeem the world through a pagan king now, and we know through his own son later. His methods might be peculiar to us, but we can trust him because he made us, and he knows us, and he loves us, and he plans to save us. Okay, so every night before I put my children to sleep, I have two children, for those of you who don't know, um, I ask them the same question. It's the first question of the children's catechism. So I say, Jack, Eloise, who made you? And they each reply, God made me. And every single night, well, you know, she's two, so something like God made me, but, you know, she's not that eloquent yet, right? (laughs) Um, So every night I follow up. They say, God made me. And every single night I say, you're right. God made you. And God loves you, and he will sustain you through the night. It's simple enough that their two- and three-year-old minds are maybe beginning to understand what I'm saying, and yet so profound that their almost 30-year-old mother needs the reminder every single night just the same. It's on this basis that God appeals to us today, through his prophet Isaiah. God made you, friends, each and every one of you. And therefore, he gets to call the shots. The good news is God also loves you. And therefore, he gets to call the shots. He must be trusted. Do not fear, because his plan for you and for me is redemption. And it is in this truth that we find the strength to face our fears and our idols and cling to Jesus. Only Jesus. As we live lives soaked in grace and marked by the backwardness of his kingdom that doesn't always make sense. Even when his ways aren't our ways. He is to be trusted. He is our maker and our redeemer. Amen? Amen. Okay, let me pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for this glorious truth. Um, Thank you for creating each of us um, so intimately, for knowing each of us. You know what is on all of our hearts. I pray that you would just remove the things that we cling to to trust other than you, that we would see you as more beautiful and more believable, that we would see the world rightly, that we would see each other rightly, um, that we would just be able to trust in you and you alone and not in all of these other things that vie for our heart's affection. Um, we thank you for Jesus um, for making our way back to you. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.